Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA and sometimes dive into other combat sports. Now, I want to get right into it and briefly, when I say briefly, it's probably going to be like 10 minutes. Uh, hopefully not though. Briefly talk about the Floyd versus Tension fight again because of the new camera angles. We have the benefit now to have actually good camera angles and they're mostly from the audience. The fight camera or whatever you want to call it, the, the angles are pretty bad. But there's some things I've been wrong. There's some things I've been right, I think. What I've been wrong about, the thing about Floyd stepping on the shoe from the camera angle, it completely looks like he did. And right when he steps on the outside of Tension's foot, we're talking about the first knockdown, Tension kind of tripped. And that leg actually gave out under him. So it looked like Floyd stepped on it. But from the audience's view, Floyd just stepped out really far. And the left hook seemed to just land a little bit. It still grazes. Could have knocked the equilibrium off. Absolutely, it could have. Absolutely. And he did kind of start falling after he got hit by that shot. The right hook, people think that landed. The camera angle show it never landed. The right hook actually goes to the body and it just like grazes the body, if anything. And I hear people talking about, arguing me about the sound of the punches. You can never go by the sounds of punches. Sounds of punches can be very deceiving to you because a lot of Floyd's hooks, they weren't landing knuckles. Some of them that sounded really loud, especially that first one with the first knockdown. He didn't land with the palm and he didn't land with the knuckles. It was almost like a slap punch. It kind of landed with the minor knuckles. These actually sound a lot louder. When you land knuckles or palm, it usually sounds more like a thud. His punches on tension, both of them, the left hook that grazed and the right hook that grazed the body, they both sound like slapping punches and neither of them landed completely clean. So you can't go by the sound of the punches. Now, the first knockdown, I would say, is probably the most convincing after watching the other angles. But still, the fall- okay, the punch landed and it could have knocked tension off balance. I'm not saying there's no way that it could have. Of course it could have. The flopping afterwards, it still seems a bit much. I've never seen someone react in that manner. And I'm glad to see other fighters and some analysts also agree. Um, the second knockdown with the close-up camera angle, it looks more convincing to me that it was not a natural reaction at all. Um, Floyd went with a right hook to the body and then right shovel hook to the top. A couple people telling me that he actually went shovel hook and push forward and then follow through with the hook again. That is absolutely not what he did. I understand what you're trying to say. That is absolutely not what happened there. He just threw a shovel hook. Just a shovel hook. Connected and you see the impact. Tension's head move out with the hook. And then he snaps it back. In real time, it looks very strange. In slow motion, it's like, okay, maybe he was out of it a little bit. But no, when you look at it real time... His head moves out to the right and then back, like quickly. Almost like he got hit by a jab or a straight right hand right afterward, but he didn't. And when he fell, he kind of fell back and started turning. It was a very strange reaction. And then the last knockdown, it looked pretty much the same as usual. Um, Left hook landed over the top. It did land toward the back of the ear, which can, again, knock off the equilibrium. But the double flop and the hopping, it just doesn't look natural at all. Even for someone who is on wobbly legs, who can't get their balance, I never see someone push off the ground and jump in the air. To hop off the ground, you have to be forcing that out there. No one tries to stand up by pushing back. Planting with one foot, getting on one knee, and then he pushed back and jumped in the air and reached for the ropes. Again, maybe this is one of those weird things that happens once in a blue moon and we just all have to learn from it that this can happen to someone that they're this wobbly i'm not saying that there's no way that he didn't get rocked or anything or he didn't get his equilibrium knocked off there and it was a legit knockdown i'm not saying there's no way that could have happened but from seeing punches and knockdowns and equilibrium shots hundreds of times i've never seen anything near this reaction
I see a lot of arguments out there. A lot of people keep saying that, what do you expect? Floyd Mayweather is a 50-year-old professional boxer. He's bigger and tension has never boxed in his career. Yeah, it's not something we didn't know about going into the fight. That distinction was in everybody's mind when the fight got announced, right? So saying that, you know, Floyd's such an experienced high-level boxer, he's fighting someone who's never boxed before, that was all of our expectations and something we were anticipating going into the fight. Of course, tension was probably not going to win. And we all imagine that Floyd would dominate this fight. So people were making that argument, not really bringing anything new to this, anything new that we don't know about. Everybody knows that, of course. It's just the substance of the knockdowns and the reactions are what really is to put in question here. Not what we know about Floyd versus what we know about tension. This almost has nothing to do with the knockdowns. It doesn't matter what the credentials are, what the record is, all that stuff. If it's a boxer who threw a decent punch at tension and connected with the same weight, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. We're just looking at the knockdowns and the reactions of tension. And I had some people try to make an argument that the kicks... From the Muay Thai fighters, kickboxers, and MMA fighters that Tension has fought are weaker than the punches of Floyd Mayweather. Which is absolutely, it's it's kind of laughable. When someone says that stuff, it just shows the education level. We've seen Tension take much, much bigger hits. This doesn't really debunk that he couldn't get knocked down by Floyd. I still think he could have gotten knocked down by Floyd. But we have seen Tension display a granite chin, or at least a very, very good chin. And a good ability to take shots. Where he ate flush head kicks from Kyoji Horiguchi. We've seen him in many kickboxing fights where he has eaten big, big shots, big kicks, and walks right through them. But every single time Floyd was landing shots, he was stumbling around the ring. People will say, yeah, but Floyd's bigger. Yeah, he's bigger, but I already made this case before. Their weight supposedly was 10 pounds apart. Floyd has never fought a fight over 150 and a half pounds, if I'm not mistaken. If, so- if I'm mistaken on that, hopefully someone can correct me. But from all the fights I looked at, I don't think he's ever weighed more than 150 and a half. He fought at 154. People say he fought at 154, though. He's never even weighed 154 for a fight. He's always weighed under, which is something you have to give him credit for, beating those bigger guys. But he's not a big guy. He looked big against tension, but looking big doesn't actually mean they weigh more, right? Tony Ferguson, for an example. You would never think Tony Ferguson on the off camp would weigh over 200 pounds, which he does. Khabib the same way. I've seen a bunch of people say that Khabib, there's no way he weighs over 200. There's no way he weighs 200 pounds. Doesn't even look like he weighs 185. Looking at someone to dictate how much they weigh, again, it's just eye test. You don't really know, but we've seen the numbers. Tension was 137. Except Floyd is 147. The most I would get Floyd is going up to maybe like 155. And that's pushing it far. Because I've never seen Floyd weigh 155 before. And even with that, that's what, 18 pounds difference? Maybe tension gained a little bit of weight too. So we're talking about anywhere from 10 to 18 pounds. Yes, it could be a big difference in weight. But again, we've seen much bigger differences in weight. And guys able to take the bigger man shots easily. But we've never seen someone react to punches the way tension did. Even against bigger guys. I mean, if this was George Foreman or Francis Ngannou or someone hitting tension like this, maybe I can believe it now. But we're talking about Floyd Mayweather, who isn't known for his power. Yes, he hits hard, but he isn't known for his power. His punches weren't super powerful. His punches didn't have that kind of leverage. And then people will also argue, why would they fix this fight? Why would they have tension? This is the biggest argument I see. Not so much the punches and stuff, because it seems like most people agree that the punches and the falls were pretty weird. But the biggest argument I see everywhere is, why would they fix this fight? In reality, nobody knows. Nobody knows if they fixed it, why they would fix it in this manner. If anything, they'll try to make tension look pretty good out there. But we have to also know some other things that were very strange. First of all, why did this fight even happen? Right? Why is Floyd in Japan? Why is he fighting for Ryzen? Why is he fighting tension? 
Why is he fighting an exhibition bout three rounds, three minutes each? Why did he pull out the first time and then come back in, right? There's a lot of strange things that happened for this fight to occur. There's a lot of theories out there. I'm not saying 100% it was fixed, but I'm saying I think it was fixed, in my opinion. It was mostly due to the falls and stuff, but I don't know, man. I want to be done with this now. We'll never know the answer. We'll never know the true answer. We're all just making theories, just all making our opinions on the matter. Just the knockdowns look funny to me. The second knockdown, it's going to be very hard to convince me. That kind of reaction is natural, and that's pretty much it. And another news, Chad Mendes retired. And this is a bittersweet moment. I mean, I miss Chad Mendes already. Uh, he had a great fight against Volkanovski where he lost in the second round due to TKO. It seemed like he came into that fight knowing he was going to retire, win or lose. I wish I knew that for my prediction, but no, nah, I'm just kidding. Good for him, man. I know he has this whole thing with hunting. It's looking like it's doing pretty well. And I think the layoff, that two-year layoff that he had for the psoriasis cream, probably burned out his passion. He had to go out and do other things. And he found this whole hunting thing, and he probably just fell in love with that and wanted to do that rather than just getting punched in the face. But he's always going to be remembered as one of the OGs, one of the originals of the featherweight division for the UFC. He fought some of the best guys of all time. He fought Josie Aldo, he fought Frankie Edgar, he fought Conor McGregor, but he lost to all of them. But those are the kind of guys it took to win against them, right? And now we have Volkanovski. We'll see if Volkanovski is going to be anything special. He looks special. He really does. He has the heart. He has the power. He has the speed. He has the wrestling. He has the transitions with his game. And he just has the fire in him, man. Called on Max Holloway right after. I think him and Hanato Moikano are in the run. But if Hanato Moikano beats Jose Aldo, you got to give it to Hanato Moikano. If not, if he loses to Aldo, why not give it to uh, Volkanovski? That's what I would love to see. He claims that Holloway's going to have a tough time against that style, against a style like Frank Yeager, like Chad Mendes, like Volkanovski. And it's true that Holloway's never fought a guy with that kind of style. And that kind of style was very present early for that featherweight division as well as the WEC. So we'll see. We'll see if he's right. Personally, I do think that style can give Holloway some problems. But I don't know if Volkanovski's the guy to beat Holloway. Holloway looks really good out there, man. But as for Chad Mendes, man, I'm happy he's retired. It's bittersweet. I like to see him fight again. He is always exciting to watch. Every time he fights, everybody wants to tune in. Always gives a very explosive, exciting fight. And he fights on a very high level. He's always going to be known as probably the best guy with punches coming from takedowns. Such as going for the double leg, faking it, and coming up with the uppercut. As well as the overhand right. He's one of the best guys ever to do that. I believe he was the one that rocked Josie Aldo with that. Right, He kind of went down, dipped down like he was going to go for a takedown. Aldo followed him, and then the uppercut rocked him. So yeah, Gokansaki has a fight against Saparbeg Safarov. That should be a pretty interesting fight. Chris Cyborg handling her loss. You guys see the video of it on her YouTube channel? How could you not love Chris Cyborg? I mean, she's awesome. In victory, in defeat, she is always a fan favorite. I mean, has anybody besides maybe Dominic Cruz or someone taken a defeat better than Cyborg has? And look at the defeat she had. It wasn't like Cruz's where he went to a decision. He had some moments. He got outclassed for the most part. But Cyborg got brutally knocked out in 51 seconds, and took the defeat like a champion, like the champion she is. I mean, people around her were more devastated than she was. And she kind of took a shot at Ronda Rousey at the post-fight conference, where she had the pillow up to her face and stuff. Cyborg will be back, I believe. Will she come back to the UFC? I really hope so. I think she makes the most money here. I mean, she probably can make more money in Bellator because everybody can see her worth from the UFC. I mean, she is a pretty big name, and maybe they'll pay her a little bit more with the sponsors and stuff. Isn't it kind of funny, though, that the UFC fighters, once they get to, like, their peak in the organization and then they can go to Bellator, Bellator is able to see when they're at their peak 
what is their worth before they come in. So it's kind of actually a benefit for Bellator to see the UFC guys maybe get to their peak and then decline a little bit and see what their worth is, pay-per-view wise, all that stuff. And then they know what to pay them. Whereas before for Cyborg, when she was in Strike Force and stuff and Invicta, nobody really knew where her ceiling was, what her peak star power was until she got into the UFC. So this might be the best time for her to move on to another organization. But I think the rematch with Nunes should happen eventually. I mean, we're talking about someone who hasn't lost in, what, 12 years? Is the only fighter to be a champion in Invicta, Strikeforce, and the UFC. Her only loss prior to this was her very first professional fight when she was 16 years old. Even if it was a bad loss, I mean, people were clamoring for Jose Aldo to have a, have a rematch against Conor. You can make a case this is nearly as warranted. But I think the fight for Cyborg next should be Mega Anderson because that fight has always been looming around. People have always been wanting to see how that fight would go. And I think Nunes should defend her 135-pound belt against the winner of Espen Ladd versus Holly Holm, which is a good fight. Both contest her in different ways. Espen Ladd more with a grappling, more with a grit and the forward pressure, and Holly Holm with the elusive boxing counter-striking style. And if Cyborg is able to beat Mega Anderson, which I think she should be able to, then uh, have the rematch again. And Cyborg will see if she can fix her mistakes. I know uh, Jason Perillo did not look happy with her performance. You see his reaction during the fight. It was like he couldn't believe what Cyborg was doing out there. And Clarissa Shields also got fired up because of Cyborg's performance. But you can't take the fight out of the fighter, in a sense. You can't take out that passion they have. Cyborg has always said if she gets hit, the way she will always react is hitting back. Coming right at the opponent. And when she got hit by the leg kick and then the one overhand, she fired all cylinders and went straight at Nunez and just got KO'd for it. Will she ever be able to fix that? I don't think so. I think it's just part of her. It's like Vanderlei Silva, right? How many times did Vanderlei try to take a more methodical approach, but whenever he got hit, he just threw that game plan out the window and started swinging back, what, 20 years? And he still always does that. He still did it to Chill Sonnen. But Nunez is the greatest of all time. Her resume speaks for itself. What's this? Conor McGregor rematch with Habib. This is still being talked about, man. Dana White came out there and said that the rematch should happen in 2019. And when he says when everything goes right, I hope he means everything goes right for the fight to happen. And it doesn't happen right away. Because Khabib versus Tony, if that fight does not happen, I believe a lot of fans are going to be upset. Especially the hardcore. Khabib and Conor, I mean, who wants to see that fight again? Who wants to see that fight over any possible potential opponents that are in front of them? I don't think Conor will make any adjustments to really beat Khabib. And it's just a fight for the casuals. I mean, if the same thing happens again, which very likely it will, then what? I think Conor should get somewhat, I don't want to say a tune-up fight, but he should lower the level in competition a little bit. I mean, he came off a long layoff. Al Khabib and got dominated for the most part. Tony should not even been stripped in the first place. With Tony out there and still winning, it's very hard to say who's the best lightweight in the world right now. It's either Khabib or it's Tony. You can't say it's Khabib because Tony's still going and he's still winning. And he had a belt and he just got it taken away from him, right? So it's going to be the rightful champion over Conor McGregor, yeah. But is he more of a rightful champion than Tony Ferguson? It's either Tony or it's Khabib. And the only way you'll find out is if they fight each other or if one of them loses. And by the look of everything, how everything's going, I don't see anybody being Khabib or Tony besides each other. It makes you think, man. You know how uh, boxing had their, uh, what do they call them, the Four Kings or whatever, they, whatever it was? The Fantastic Four with Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, and uh, Marvin Hagler. This is like that era for the lightweight division. It's really the top two guys, Khabib and Tony. But you also do have Conor McGregor, and you also do have Dustin Poirier. Again, it would be interesting to see how Dustin Poirier stacks up to these guys. But it looks like Tony and Khabib are on the top of that heap. Connor may be third, and it looks like Poirier is fourth. And I think them four are above everybody else. Them four being above everybody else is such an accomplishment for those four amazing fighters. 
because the lightweight division is beyond stacked to be that much better than everybody else. That just speaks to how high level these guys are. But let's get to the questions now. Okay, we're going to start with the YouTube questions. And if you want to ask me any questions, you can ask me on YouTube on my YouTube channel. Go under the community tab and then I usually post questions for podcasts or something. And you can reply to questions under there. The comments with the most likes get read first. And if it's more convenient to use Twitter, you can also ask me a question on Twitter. Just tweet me. My Twitter handle is under every description box. And make sure to hashtag it MMA meeting and not at MMA meeting. Hashtag MMA meeting. So it doesn't get lost. I really want to see your guys' questions. And so we're going to start with 1234554321. Most likely asked eaters in the UFC division. In each UFC division, what kind of question is that? How am I supposed to know? From an ass-eating expert, I think I should break that down. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know, man. That's a weird question. Sellycopter PC. Number one, how would John Jones do against top 15 at heavyweight, but he has to weigh in at 205 pounds? It seems like he makes 205 pretty well. Like, he doesn't look too drained. Are you guys with me? When he fought Gustafson, he actually looked, not small, but he looked smaller than usual. I mean, usually his legs look really small, and I don't know if his legs got bigger or his body got smaller, but the proportions that, are u- that we usually see from him... But if you look at the proportions of his legs to his upper body, body looks smaller, legs look bigger, something like that. And I think he weighed, what, 220? He weighed 222.5 on the night of the fight, and Gustafson weighed 219.5. So Jones actually weighs more than Gustafson packing on weight after the weigh-ins. Cyborg only weighed 160.5. I'm saying only, but it was a 10, 10.7% increase. Who's the most if she's not? Volkanovski got up to 166.5. What? That's the biggest, right? Yeah, him and Montel Jackson. 14% for both those guys. I really wonder what Volkanovski walks around at. Jones, Wayne 205, fighting all the heavyweights. I think I already made one for Jones if he fought all the top 15. Um, Looking at how he fought Gustafson, I think it's pretty much the same. Yeah, I'm going to keep it the same as last time. But I think he more convincingly beats Stipe now. Because of how similar his style is to Gustafson's. John Jones really dealt well with Gus's style. I know there's the whole injury or whatever Gustafson said. I believe he said the low blow actually injured him or hurt his groin. Which is an injury he had before when he was going to fight Volkan. He had to pull out. And that potentially has something to do with his low output and his and his unwillingness to move forward. And if you notice, his legs look together for the most part. Right? You see him hopping in place. You never really see Gustafson do that. So maybe that has something to do with it. And also, he couldn't stop the takedown like he usually does. An open takedown from the outside. Um, But Jones looked really good out there. He looked like he had the fight under control. His top game looked really good. So yeah, I think if he goes up to heavyweight, he will become the champion. Number two, how many average guys at a Barker Francis and Gano take at once? Everybody. Doesn't matter what the capacity is. He would take out everybody if he wanted. The average guy. Well, we'll be honest here. And Gano would probably KO every average guy with one shot if he wanted. Because they don't know how to react to him. They're going to be intimidated. Pretty sure. Let's say they're drunk, so they're not really intimidated. Let's say they're drunk and coming in. I mean, that's even worse. That's even worse. Anything will drop these guys at that point. That would be somewhat of an experiment. Like, not actually putting Ghana to face these average guys and fight them, but how much force can he generate in every single punch if multiple targets come at him? And how, how fast can he take out targets like that? So, like, have these targets come at him at once, just, like, from all sides, and just let him hit things and see the impact on every punch and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing about fighters. Yes, one-on-one, sometimes two-on-one, sometimes three or even four-on-one. They would usually win the fights. But there's always a limit, right? There's always a limit. I don't know when Gano's limit would be. He's definitely a guy you would want to have at your side if you go to a bar knowing there's going to be a fight there. 
Owen Schneider, have you ever been KO'd before? Not in training, not in sparring, but as a kid, yeah, I think so. Being KO'd is probably a very weird feeling, right? So on two occasions, I do remember getting hurt and being dazed. One of them was me falling off a bike. The first day I learned how to ride a bike, I actually fell off it really hard. But I do remember falling and I do remember laying on the ground. So I don't know if I was KO'd, but I was definitely probably wobbly because I didn't want to get up. And when I was like, set no when i was like seven or eight i believe i got in a fight not even a fight i got sucker punched once by an older kid a much older kid and i think i did get knocked out then i can't remember that i remember the punch coming i remember seeing the punch i remember laying on the grass and looking at the the guys leave it was a long time ago that whole moment was very strange because we were playing soccer and i think i threw a ball up and it hit some kid in the face by accident, complete accident, and the kid was older than me. He was probably in his mid-teens, and I was like eight years old, and for sure he blindsided me. But other than that, no. Brian Historia, about what percentage of UFC fighters do you think are currently taking some sort of PEDs? If I have to guess, man, um, it's going to be less than pre-USADA, but this whole shadiness from USADA, probably more than I thought in the first place. But I believe somewhere around 20 to 30% are taking something. I think pre-USADA was probably around 70 to 80%. I mean, the transformation we saw from pre-USADA fighters to post-USADA fighters was crazy, man. If you were watching the UFC back then, before USADA, and then you saw them after, wow, did you get blown away. Not naming any fighters, but there are some mascots for that transition. And they went from Hulk to Bruce Banner really quick. Marco Bielov Pavlich. Fantasy matchups. John Jones versus Anthony Smith. Okay, this is the fight I think should happen next. I know people want the DC fight. Here's the thing I want to say about the DC fight. If DC and Jones is going to happen at light heavyweight, I really have no interest in it. Like, at all. I'd rather see the Anthony Smith fight, to be honest. Because I don't think DC will beat Jones. I don't want to see the same fight again for the third time. If they're going to fight each other, it has to be a heavyweight. And that's where the interest is. I don't think the interest is at light heavyweight. I think it's only a heavyweight. Where DC is better, where he's full, where he's healthy. And we get to see a heavyweight Jones as well. So there's a lot of things we're going to be seeing in that fight that we have never seen before. And DC with power at heavyweight doesn't really have that power at light heavyweight. How much of a threat will that be to Jones? Because he was able to land on Jones early in the first round in the rematch. But if that was heavyweight DC, could he have really hurt him there? I wonder. But Jones' chin is amazing. Jones versus Anthony Smith. I gotta go Jones. I gotta go Jones. I don't think anybody at light heavyweight is going to beat Jones. I think the hardest matchup in the future will probably be Dominic Reyes because of his range. His striking is excellent. I think he is a better boxer. He has pretty good kicks as well. He is very pressuring. And he has very good directional work, which can work on the pulse and retreat from Jones specifically. And he is a good grappler too. But this one, I got Jones. I think he's too much. I think he'll be able to hurt Smith. And the creativity from Jones can give Smith some problems. This doesn't mean Smith has no chance. Smith is very dangerous. And he has great power and he's a long fighter. And he is very experienced as well. And he has a good submission game. I think on the feet, Smith with his hands can give some problems to Jones. But I think Jones will probably take down Smith, control the fight, win by TKO. You all are Merle versus Adesanya. This is probably Adesanya's hardest fight. I think the wrestling is just too much at the end of the day. And the uh, unorthodox timing of Romero can also give him some opportunities on the feet, which can also set up takedowns. Prime Chuck Liddell versus Tiago Santos. I gotta go with Tiago Santos. Chuck Liddell was just way too one-dimensional. Just way too one-dimensional. He has really good takedown defense and really good hands. Pretty good head kicks, I would say. But he's, he's not going to worry about takedowns against Santos. Santos, I think, is more, uh, I would say, dangerous or lethal striker. Just in general, because of all the all the variety of strikes he throws out there. right? And Chuck Liddell gets hit too easily. Even back then, he had no real good defense besides footwork. 
And you do not want to get hit by a guy like Teoko Santos once. Even Prime Chocodel, not even one time. Prime Chocodel fought Quentin Jackson, and he had a hard time taking that guy's shots the first time. If Santos head kicks Chocodel, this fight's over. And if he eats a right overhand or a left hook, it might be over. And he doesn't do too well against leg kicks. So I gotta go with Santos. The game has just evolved. It's almost not fair at this point. Brian Ortega versus Ryan Hall. Man, would that be a fight. I think Ortega would keep it on the feet and beat him on the feet. I think he's a much better striker. On the ground would be very interesting, man. And they are in the same division, so hopefully we'll see that one day. Khabib versus Kevin Lee. I gotta go with Khabib. Khabib's cardio would be the biggest factor in this fight. And Khabib does have pretty underrated striking. Very underrated boxing. I think he has more power than Kevin Lee does. I think he's faster than Kevin Lee with his hands and as well as moving in. And he is much better at transitioning between striking and wrestling than Kevin Lee is. And his wrestling is going to give Lee a lot of problems to stuff early in the fight. Which will gas out Lee more so throughout the fight. Lee can probably get a takedown in the first round. But I think Khabib is just such a good grappler. He's not going to give Lee any position he's going to be comfortable in. Nate Diaz versus Dustin Poirier. This fight would be pretty close because it all depends on what Poirier does. If he boxes a lot with Nate Diaz, he's going to lose that fight. But I think Poirier should win the fight with leg kicks and wrestling. And he has a very good ground game as well to uh, just be defensive with. Probably land shots over the top. But do something like what RDA did, right? Take him down and be defensive and land ground upon where you see openings. And that's it. So I got to go with Poirier in that one. Jorge Masvidal versus Nick Diaz. I got to go with Masvidal. I think the game has just evolved so much. I don't think the ground game would be that much tested for either of them. And on the feet, I would say Nick is a better boxer, but Masvidal's boxing is no laughing matter. It's just Masvidal's kicks and his movement will give Diaz a lot of problems. As well as his chin and his defense is insanely good. Insanely good. He rarely ever gets hit. Nick gets hit quite often. Horry really gets hit by punches. Tyron Woodley versus GSP. I'll go with GSP because of more weapons, and I believe he has a higher fight IQ than Tyron does. Pretty much through that, I think he just keeps the distance, pumps out jabs, looks for takedowns. Probably won't get taken down himself because of the distance he works at, and his takedown defense is just good in general. And I think he's better than Tyron on the ground. TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt at the same time versus Francis Ngannou. Um, you gotta go with TJ and Cody. Way smaller. We're talking about over 100 pounds smaller, each of them, than Francis. But it's going to be a little bit much. The speed, the angles these two guys are going to be moving at. The way they're going to be coming at Engano at the same time. I'd probably have to go with TJ and Cody. And we're talking about some high level fighters there. I think they can make Francis tired eventually. Just keep moving in and out. Keep exchanging on him. Keep coming at him at the same time and then moving away. Stuff like that. Be very smart out there. Then we go to Kevin. Who stands the biggest threat to John Jones? Also quick early prediction for Max versus Connor too. If it were to happen at 155. Biggest threat to John Jones in general. Huh? Heavyweight DC could be a threat. I think Nganu could be a threat. If Prime JDS was around, I think he would be a threat. Stipe is still a threat. But if you're talking about light heavyweight, I think it's Reyes. And at heavyweight, I'd probably say either heavyweight DC or Nganu. And for Connor and Max too, at this point, I'd have to go with Max. That performance he put on Ortega opened my eyes so much on a potential fight with Connor. Max doesn't get hit, man. He doesn't get hit. He will get hit against Connor, but his chin has been tested. I believe he can take Connor's shots pretty well. And the pressure he'll put on Connor, he's a better striker overall, I think, than Connor is. He can work Connor's takedown defense as well. And the volume, if Connor lets Max move, if he lets him get on a little bit, Connor's going to be overwhelmed, I believe. It would be a tough fight. But at this point, I have to go with Max Holloway. And we're talking about 155 where he can actually have more power. I gotta go with Max on that one. 
Amon Noshekar. Will we get to see your face? Yeah, you'll see me. Isaac Barak. If not Gus, who could be John Jones? Nobody at light heavyweight right now. We got to see how Reyes does. We got to see how Smith does. And we got to see how Johnny Walker does later in his career. But right now, I don't see anybody. Number two, how does Yoel Romero fare against the top 15 light heavyweights since there is a chance he might move up to light heavyweight? That would actually throw some... I don't think he'll ever fight Jones, but that would really open up some doors. Uh, Rockhold's moving up to light heavyweight as well. So let's see the top 15. Krylov, he destroys Krylov. I'm going to go through these quick because I think I spent a lot of time on these top 15 things. So I'm just going to say who would win and by what fashion. So against Krylov, I think he TKOs Krylov with the wrestling and the mixture of his striking. Misha Serkunov, too much on the feet. I think he knocks him out. Shogun Hua, this is a mismatch. I think he knocks out Shogun easily. Glover Tashira, I think he knocks him out as well. Too quick. Wrestling's too good defensively, and he, I think he's a better striker overall. Ovin St. Pru, much more of the same. The unorthodox striking of St. Pru can give Romero some problems, but I think he's just too open for Romero. Jimmy Manua, again, more of the same. The wrestling is there. That would be a deciding factor if he goes for that, but I don't think Manua could take any shots from Romero. Ilir Latifi. This would be an interesting fight, but after seeing Latifi's last fight and just his fight IQ, I gotta go with Romero. I think he's faster than Latifi. He has much better cardio than Latifi does, and he's a much better striker. Dominic Reyes. Right now, I'll go with Romero because of the experience and the wrestling, but that would be a tough fight. Tiago Santos, I gotta go with Romero. Santos is too aggressive. He'll run into something. And the takedowns of Romero are going to be pretty strong. Corey Anderson, again, I got Romero pretty much anywhere. Better wrestler, better striker. Volkan Uzdemir, the wrestling would destroy Volkan. Jan Blachowicz, I got to go with Romero with the striking. Just way better than Jan's in general. But it would not be an easy fight. Jan is actually pretty capable on the, on the feet himself. Anthony Smith. Smith's chin is way better at light heavyweight. It's noticeably better. He took shots from Volkan Uzdemir. And in middleweight, he couldn't take shots from pretty much anybody. That would be a tough fight, to be honest, because Anthony Smith is dangerous everywhere. Right? He will throw shots at any position. And if Romero ever zigs when he should have zagged, he's going to get hurt. I'll go with Romero for now, but that would be a tough one. Alexander Gustafsson. I got to go with Romero. But for some reason, the explosive strikers do give Gustafsson some problems. The wrestling is going to be something that's going to test Gus, but I believe the southpaw left overhand is going to find home eventually. Daniel Cormier. I don't know why he's still in the rankings here. I got to go with Cormier. The first two rounds are going to be rough for DC. And that's going to be because of DC's pressure and the way he would have to fight Romero. He's going to push Romero so much in the early rounds to try to get him tired and just force out things where it's going to make Romero throw things out there and get really explosive and maybe panic at times under the pressure. But I think he smothers and gasses out Romero with just forward pressure, constant takedowns. He is a bit bigger than Romero. And then John Jones. I think Romero can give Jones some problems, especially in the striking. And the wrestling will be a little bit tricky, but I do think Jones can take down Romero. But in the striking, Jones is going to have a bit of a problem there. But I do see Jones wearing out Romero, taking him down, and probably winning by a decision or a late submission. I would love to see Romero there, though. Keep up the great work, and Happy New Year in advance, my man. Thank you so much, man. You too. The Stats Life Productions. If Artem Lobov was given 11 years of training to fight Tyron Woodley, and Woodley only had one year to train for Artem, who would win? 11 years seemed reasonable, since this would give him more than enough time to train wrestling, BJJ, fight IQ, and conditioning. That's logical, because it usually does take a BJJ practitioner to go from a white belt to a black belt in 10 years. So that's a big progression in skills that can happen there. But because you're also be focusing on other martial arts, 
you probably won't get from a white belt to a black belt in 11 years. It might get up to like a brown belt, purple belt, somewhere there if you're focused on many other martial arts as well. But you're going to get a lot better in all of them. This hypothetical also assumes that Artem's body would not age during this training. <laughs> Pretty much asking, could Artem ever cover the gap? If I'm going to be honest here, no jokes. I think Artem stomps. What I'm just kidding. Uh, even with 11 years, I do not see Artem making up the size difference as well as the skill gap between him and Tyron. I don't think 11 years would do it. You have to give Artem some unrealistic number of years. I think you have to give him something like 20 to 30 years. Because Artem doesn't really have the attributes to make up for his skill deficiencies or even prepare for Woodley. I mean, he's always going to be at disadvantage with his attributes forever. The only thing he can make up is with the game plan, the fight IQ, and the skills. So I think he could probably beat a Woodley with like 20 to 30 years of preparation or something, right? The reach difference is going to be a huge factor. The size is going to be a bit much. Even though Tyron is not a tall guy for his size, he's still the same height as Artem. The wrestling is going to be a big factor. The power, I mean, just everything, man. Everything Tyron does, I don't think Artem has an answer for it, even if he was the same size as Woodley. So no, I don't think Artem would beat him with 11 years of preparation. Eric Juston, how much do you think Colby Covington actually slays? What? <laughs> this draws a line to the first question in a way. Definitely Trump supporters, right? Laying down the conservative girls. But the conservative girls are actually pretty good looking in general. So the answer is Colby's winning. Lay out top prospects for 2019 in each weight class. Okay, I'm going to make a video on that this month. I'm going to make a video for that and the nightmare matchup. I'm going to make the nightmare matchup first and then I'll do the prospect video. Brian Yao. Do you think tension Mayweather fight was fixed? I already went over that. Um, I think it's fixed. Do I know it's fixed? I don't know. Daniel Bealy. Hypothetical matchups. Brian Ortega versus Zabit. At this point, I gotta go with Zabit. Ortega's hit too easily. And a guy who's that long against him. Because Ortega pretty much had like a similar reach to Holloway. Zabit is taller and longer. And he has high output as well. And he'll throw head kicks and stuff. If Ortega's not going to be able to get away from those very quick kicks that are almost always set up by rapid punches eating shins are gonna be a bit much to what he's used to eating and they're not gonna be healthy i gotta go zabit at this point i don't think ortega can take him down and i think the striking of zabit will give ortega a lot of problems he'll take too much damage i think john jones versus cormier with jones having zero in his system at heavyweight it's kind of hard to tell man because how how is jones off of everything you could point to osp fight so let's say john jones that fought osp versus cormier at heavyweight I'm going to go with Cormier at heavyweight, 100%. Jones wasn't nearly as active. It looked like he was thinking too much in there. It looks like he was anticipating too many shots that weren't coming his way. And doing that against Cormier will get him caught. So I think overhands will catch Jones, and I think the damage will just accumulate. So people say the stuff in Jones' system probably has something to do physically for him, which absolutely probably does. I think the biggest impacts are in the training, because he can consistently train, heal very well, recover, come back. I think it also has a factor mentally where it can create confidence, right? And it looked like the OSP fight, he didn't look super confident. I would stick with Cormier in that one. Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky. Man, if I have to make a prediction right now, I'm going to go with Holloway. I don't think he's going to be in the shots of Volkanovsky. But Volkanovsky has a chin to move forward and create opportunities for himself. And he has the pace, right? He can keep up Holloway's pace. I believe that. Holloway can keep picking at Volkanovski. I think Volkanovski will catch Holloway with some things. He'll probably take him down once or twice in the fight. But I think he'll get to the point where he eats too many shots moving forward. To the point where he can't progress anymore in his own output and his own openings. And Holloway versus Mendez. I gotta go with Holloway again. 
I think it's going to be more so the same, but I think he finishes Mendez where he probably doesn't finish Volkanovski. And I think Mendez will let off Holloway more than Volkanovski. And that will give Holloway more of a range to work with. Stipe versus John Jones at heavyweight. I went over this before. I think Jones will win this fight. I think the kicks will give Stipe a lot of problems. I think the takedowns can give him problems. In the clinch, I think Jones will dominate the fight. And he's longer as well. So I'm going to go with Jones on that one. And Stevie is pretty slow with his footwork. I don't think he'll cover the distance to catch Jones. Love your videos, especially the podcast. Never stop, mate. Love from Australia. Thank you so much, man. And shout out to Australia. Australia is always a place I would love to visit. Wow, interesting question. Um, A lot of questions about multiple attackers. What do you think is the best way in martial art to fight multiple attackers? Is it possible to win if one fighter who is high level and the rest are average people? Yes. You can take people down, but you can't follow people to the ground unless it's the last attacker where it's like an easy win over them, right? So let's say you're fighting three, four people, and you are an extremely high-level fighter, like UFC top contender or something. Striking will be the best way to go, especially punching, especially boxing, because punching in general are the fastest attacks, and they cover distance the quickest. And with punching, you're able to move a lot better than you are with kicking. So you can punch and move, punch and move, create angles on people, and these are average people, right? Most likely, you're going to be hurting them with every shot. Especially because you know how to throw the punch. They don't know how to defend well. They usually keep their chins high up, which is an easy KO. All that sort of stuff. So, yes, it's very possible. It's absolutely possible. I've seen videos of it before. I've seen not even high-level fighters. I've seen low-level people I don't even know fought. They look like they've trained before and take out multiple attackers themselves. So, I would believe someone like Conor McGregor... Or let's say someone like Yuval Romero or something would take out multiple guys. It will be tough, especially the way they come in on you. If they come in at you at once, that's going to be a problem. But if you can get them coming at you one by one, like trickling in on you, you can hurt each guy one after the other, right? So backing up, knowing where they are, knowing where the positions are. And if you see them like in a line in front of you or trying to surround you, kind of move towards someone and also at an angle you're moving away. So let's say there's one guy in front of you. Let's say it's three people. One guy in front of you, one guy diagonally to the left of you, so he's on the left of the guy in the center, and one guy on the right of the guy in the center. So all three are in a row in front of you. Just for instance, this is just an example, because situations and positions can be all over the place. But the point is to get one guy at a time, and use your positioning, use your knowledge of, I guess in a, in a boxing way or an MMA way, it would be ring generalship or knowing where you are in the cage and stuff like that but using it in real life. And they're all moving in on you a little bit. So if you start making your way toward your left a little bit and also back, you're going to get closer to the guy on your left, right? And that would automatically make that guy come at you first. And that way you can potentially catch him first and then the next guy's coming after. The middle guy's going to be after. The guy all the way on the right is going to have to cover more distance than all of them to get to you. And this gives you more opportunities to actually hit each target rather than having all of them hit you at once, which is going to be obviously the biggest problem. The biggest problems you're going to have getting hit at once by everybody and going to the ground where there's multiple attackers above you, even if you take someone to the ground. Now, if you're going to take down people, it better be a quick slam, a quick throw, a quick trip, and automatically focus on the next target. Owen Schneider, who has the best chin at MMA? Man, it comes down to so many people. You got Max Holloway. You could probably say it's Francis Ngannou because he's fighting heavyweights. I mean, he ate shots from Stipe easily. He never looks stunned or out of it. And we're talking about Stipe, who has knocked out almost everybody he's ever fought before in the first round. And he could not rock Ngannou with his best punches for five rounds. Even an Ngannou who was tired, who couldn't really brace for the impact. If you want to just take that part because he's fighting heavyweights and he's taking their shots, you probably say it's him. But people say, yeah, but he's a heavyweight. 
Yes, that is true. Guys who are bigger can take a better punch, but it's not by much. It's not by how much people are making it seem like. There's a reason why knockouts, the heavier you go in the weight classes, happen more often. Because the chins don't go up with the power. You know what I'm saying? It's not an equal progression. At flyweight, for an example, KOs are very rare. Or a lot more rare than they are at middleweight or heavyweight or heavyweight. And especially heavyweight. That's why they always say heavyweights just need one shot. Because the chins don't match the power. You know what I'm saying? So they could take a better shot, but it's not like they can eat a shot like flyweights can with each other. So that's one example of how the chins actually don't get that much better the more weight you put on. But they do get a little bit better. So yeah, Yoel Mero. Yoel Mero has excellent chin. He was KO'd before, but he has a really good chin. Dan Hooker. How can you not give it to him? Brian Ortega. I mean, come on. So there's a lot of guys, but I would say it's Ngannou right now. Last one on YouTube, Jimmy Jimmy. If all fighters were the same weight class, who would have the best chance against John Jones? When people ever ask this question, they usually look down to the lowest weight classes because they're the most technical. So you got TJ Dillashaw. I mean, how is it not him? Not because he's one of the lowest weight classes, but style-wise, he has such a good style against a guy like Jones. Great takedown defense. Great takedowns himself. Switch stance fighting is going to give Jones so many problems. I wish... Someone had that ability at light heavyweight, something to that extent, because it would actually give Jones a very competitive fight, just that aspect of it. Nobody switches besides Jones, really. Jones is the only guy at light heavyweight that I see switches like that. But yeah, I would probably have to say it's TJ Dillashaw. If I'm looking heavier, I'd probably say Robert Whitaker because of his unfathomable takedown defense. And I think his striking is better than Jones's. And he has that blitzing style, which can really get past some of Jones' strikes. But I would say it's TJ Dillashaw. Alright, we're going to start with Adrian at AdrianJames98 on Twitter. In a pure wrestling match, who would win, DC or Jones? It depends which kind of wrestling. If it's Greco-Roman, I think Jones. If it's freestyle, I think DC. Who's a better wrestler collegiately in amateurs? I would say it's DC. And pick two weight classes and tell me out of the top 15 whose rankings placement is wrong. Thanks for the amazing videos. Pick two weight classes? I'll just I'll just look at the rankings and just see who I think is off. Um, I think Caitlin Vieira should be above Holly Holm. I think at this point, Jacare should be above Rockhold because Rockhold lost to Bisping. He beat David Branch and then he lost to Romero. So yeah, I think Jacare should be above him. Welterweight looks pretty nice. Looks very logical. Same with light heavyweight. Same with heavyweight. Lightweight, man, I don't know how Connor's number two. He only beat one guy there and that was Eddie Alvarez. I know Eddie was the champion, but Connor rarely ever fights. I mean, does his thing kind of go down now? He barely fights. I think it should be Habib, Tony, Poirier, I, Quinta, then Connor. Um, other than that, it looks pretty good. The rankings are actually looking a lot better than before. I mean, rankings used to be terrible back then. You would have fighters who just beat a fighter and they would move up in the update and they would still be below the guy they beat. Do you put Ortega over Aldo? I mean, think about it. Who has Aldo lost to? He only lost to Holloway. Yes, he lost twice. But he is coming off a win over Stevens and Ortega never fought Aldo and he never really fought anybody too high in the rankings besides Edgar. I know he beat Moicano, but Moicano was really low in the rankings back then. It would be very similar to like Conor McGregor, right? He beat Eddie Alvarez, so how was he still number two when Eddie fell outside the top five? You know, that's debatable, I think. Aldo and Ortega. Moicano and Volkanovski are both number four. That's interesting. I like that. Let me see what Rafael Sansal is doing. Should it be above Cruz? I think at this point, you should put Asansal above Cruz, because Cruz barely fights. And Asansal has been winning. And then pound for pound. I know DC over Jones looks funny. But DC is a two-division champion, and that is specifically what Pound for Pound is for. Or what it's trying to prove is a fighter who's good in different weight classes. And we still have to see how Jones does at heavyweight. 
Connor above Stipe. I guess because Connor won the belt, but there's no way Stipe moves weight classes. And here's the thing about Stipe he's fighting guys who are pretty much the same indifference as Connor moving up to 155. Some of them, at least. I mean, guys like Stefan Struve and Mark Hunt and Roy Nelson and Ganu. You know, these guys are much bigger than he is in terms of weight. I put Stipe above Connor because Connor's one and one in lightweight, and he's also one and one in welterweight against a lightweight. So, so Hudo's number 11 over Whitaker. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Whitaker fought at welterweight and he moved up to middleweight and became the champion. I would actually say Whitaker's above Connor and Stipe both. So, I would put Whitaker up at number nine. Tony Ferguson's number 13. Interesting. And then Rosen Cyborg. The rankings aren't too bad. Really quick, my tweets are shite at UA Smatico. Out of these fighters, Bigfoot, Brock Lesnar, Overeem, Verdum, Jones, Romero, Mendez, Rothwell, Sonnen, Silva, and Cyborg. Do you think that did PEDs and for some time in the sport as well? Do you believe that tainted supplement supplements are a real thing in any of the cases? I think Bigfoot, of course, has been doing it for a while. I think he admitted that he needs to take it. Lesnar, of course, I think took it for a while. Overeem did take it for a while. I don't know about how long he took it for, but he did take it in the past. Because there was skinny Overeem for a while at light heavyweight. But yeah, Overeem was there for a little bit, so I think he's been doing it for a while. I don't know about Verdum. I really don't know. He never really changed. He never really looked super powerful or anything. Or you know, He doesn't look like a guy who has taken PEDs. I'd probably give him some of the benefit of the doubt. Jones, of course, we have known him taking it. Do I think he's been taking it for a while? I do think he has been taking it for a pretty long time. I don't know about Romero. He hasn't really got caught for PEDs. He passed with a supplement thing. He definitely looks like he probably has taken something, but he's always looked like this, even in the Olympics. So I'll give Romero a benefit of the doubt. I don't think he has taken PEDs. Mendez, I'm pretty sure that was a psoriasis cream. Ben Rothwell, I think he has been taking some things. I don't know for sure. It's kind of hard to tell with Rothwell. Sonnen, of course. Silva, of course. Cyborg. I think Cyborg is just pretty much a one and done thing. She definitely does look smaller now, though, than she did before. And she has talked about how she is losing weight naturally to get down to 145 healthier. And do I believe the tainted supplement thing? Just in some cases, but usually no. Matthew Molange, you're a savage. Interesting by Murad at GVNO135. Number one, don't you think it's kind of good that Tony and Habib haven't fought yet because Khabib has improved his defense and striking overall greatly. And number two, what should DC do to beat Jones this time? Okay, yeah, I do think that Tony and Khabib, as time has went by, actually got much more of an exciting and compelling fight because they both have gotten better and Khabib actually has a striking game now. So if we saw Tony and Khabib fight the other four times, we wouldn't have seen the best version of them to fight each other. So yeah, I, I agree with that. But the time is now because I have a feeling Tony might decline. Because of his age and the damage he has taken. And I don't want to see them fight when Tony's declined. And for DC, what does he have to do to beat Jones? Stop leaning to his left. Stop leaning in general. Besides when he comes in for the clinch. When he tries to, when he tries to fade in and get a single collar or something. Other than that, no more dipping. No more leaning in any direction. Maybe just back. Maybe. He has to set combinations a little bit more. He has to pressure Jones without following him. DC follows a lot. And he has to start cutting off the cage. Jones is very dangerous though when you cut him off. Because you kind of trap him. And he starts letting out his offense a little bit more. And it gets really creative with the leg kicks and the punches to the body. And I think DC should try to throw more leg kicks. For some reason people don't throw leg kicks at Jones. And I believe they can work. Especially if you just mix it up. Don't make that your relying tactic. Like I'm just going to leg kick him and beat him like this. No just set that up a little bit. Throw them in there. 
And here's the thing about DC. When he would throw overhands and stuff at Jones, don't back off. That's what Jones wants you to do. If you cover the distance and land the overhand right and get Jones to the cage, stay there. Get right into the clinch, dirty box, try to work for takedowns, and don't let Jones get out of there. Always cut him off. Don't follow him as he gets out. And DC does this thing to everybody where he reaches forward with both hands and traps them both. He just grabs onto them. And this works on everybody besides John Jones, or it's a lot more dangerous to use it on Jones because Jones is like the only guy that throws elbows from that position, right? If you grab both of his hands, he's just going to torque over the elbow, right? Very similar to what Tito Ortiz pretty much invented for ground and pound. When people used to grab his hands or wrist control him when he's on top, he would just land elbows over the top. That's what Jones does on the feet. And for DC, he just has to anticipate that as well as knees to the body. Right? Those are the only things Jones actually does when DC traps both of his hands. He will land elbows over the top or knees to the body. Right, And if Jones is going to go for an elbow over the top and DC can feel the motion of it, he could try to go under for a double leg, drive it to the cage or something and work from there where the range is at his advantage now. But if there's a knee coming, it's going to be pretty hard to get away from that. It's going to be pretty hard to defend it if Jones is on point with his accuracy. Right, So... It all comes down to DC has to get in close. And the forward pressure with trying to trap the hands is a good way to get in. And because of that, it's going to make Jones have a harder time throwing kicks, moving back at that kind of pace. Best questions, Nathan? Man, I don't know. There's been so many good questions ever since I started the podcast. A quick one by Noise Mero and Noise Mero DJ. Was the UFC's biggest mistake of 2018 booking rematches too soon? And Rose versus Yuana, TJ versus Cody. I would like to see those fighters have some more time to address the reasons they lost. That is a big one. I understand Yoana getting a rematch. I understand why that's a thing, but I believe she should have she should have fought again before she fought Rose. Or at least got a lot more time off. TJ versus Cody should not have happened again. Cody, I don't think, deserved a rematch. And another one would be Jose Aldo versus Holloway. That that rematch should not have happened like that. I understand Aldo took it up on short notice for Frankie. But yeah, some of them I don't think should have happened. They need to address the losses and fighters like Yoana who do too many excuses and it looked like she clouded her mind for what the reasons for that loss was. She really needed more time so she can clear her head on that thing because it looked like she wasn't looking at the fight realistically. But what I believe a bigger mistake was letting younger prospects or more inexperienced fighters get title shots in the manner that they did over legitimate contenders right? You got to really follow the rankings or at least follow the progression of the division. You, know, you got to go by a system and having these guys leapfrog, these younger guys, more quote unquote marketable names, leapfrog the already established contenders is only going to do a disservice to those fighters, to those young fighters, to the top contenders that deserve the title shot and also to the fans. Because yes, the, the anticipation of the fight is going to be exciting, but more often those fighters are not going to be ready and they weren't ready. So you look at fighters like Darren Till, for an example. I understand he beat Steven Thompson, but I don't know if he should have got a title shot that soon. Francis Agata might have been the same thing. Would you say Brian Ortega is another one in hindsight? I mean, he only beat one top contender, and that was Frankie Edgar, and he's very young in his career. He hasn't been tested in his overall game yet, and he sustained a lot of damage, it looked like. And we have to see how he comes back, but it looked like he suffered a lot of damage, which he shouldn't have taken. And not only just throwing those younger guys at the champion, throwing them up at top contenders. That's even happened where they weren't ready for the fights. They did it with Yair versus Frankie Edgar. They did it with Eljamain Sterling versus Rafael Sansao. Jason Knight versus Ricardo Lamas. Paige Van Zandt versus Rose Namajunas back then. Paige Van Zandt versus Michelle Watterson. Duho Joy against Cub Swanson. I mean, that one was 
I know a lot of people were so high on Duho Joy, but throwing him up at Cub Swanson and then Jeremy Stevens, I mean, that's a bit much, man. That's that's a bit much throwing him at the veterans like that. And especially coming off a brutal war against Swanson, you throw him up against an even more dangerous fighter in Jeremy Stevens. Throwing in Justin Gage against Eddie Alvarez was another one. I mean, there's so many, right? There's so many. I know Gage, he was a champion at World Series of Fighting. He looked like he was really experienced and all that stuff, but he never fought anybody close to competition like Eddie Alvarez. He beat Michael Johnson in a very close fight. I mean, he got rocked a couple times before that happened, so I don't think the Eddie Alvarez fight probably shouldn't have happened. He should have had a couple fights before they put that fight together to make sure Gaethje's on that level, but Eddie pretty much beat Justin at his own game. I remember Todd Duffy back in the day. I mean, they threw him up against some of the best heavyweights at the time, and he wasn't ready for them. That right there, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes that the UFC can make because you're potentially eliminating prospects. And don't get me started when they put up prospects against each other early in their careers. I mean, come on. Because you're eliminating prospects. You're not allowing them to grow naturally at a very good pace. So guys like Sean O'Malley, Song Yadong, these other guys like that, Zabit to an extent, but now they're thrown up against Jeremy Stevens. They're more so building them up slowly and letting them progress their skills. So we can have more challengers in the future and have the division running smoothly because the divisions are really reliant on prospects. Look at the light heavyweight division. There's very little prospects there and that's what's making this division lacking. The older guys are getting beaten by the dominant champion and there's nobody else to come up to challenge the champion so they got to wait for the newer younger prospects to show up. Nadal underscore one-on-one which WWE superstar do you think will be successful in MMA besides Brock Lesnar? Um, Isn't Jack Swagger a pretty high level wrestler? But here's the thing, I don't think any of them, to be honest. Because Brock came at a time where the game was a lot more one-dimensional. The game has evolved so much. Most of the fighters, especially in the lower weight classes, then again, the WWE wrestlers are all going to be like heavyweights or light heavyweights or middleweights. But the game has evolved so much, that wrestling style, that one-dimensional, one martial art thing is not going to work anymore. Uh, I think Brock came at a time where it could have worked and he fought Mark Hunt. And again, Brock was on stuff. But he fought Mark Hunt, who is just pretty much a kickboxer with good hands. But if he fought someone like Stipe or Cormier or even Nganu, who has more weapons in the striking with better takedown defense, or Alistair Overeem again, I don't think he would have done too well. So I think that time has gone by. I don't think those guys would do really well in MMA. Harry Walia at Harry Walia 30. What does John have to do now to cement himself as the greatest in terms of legacy? He has to do a lot. In my eyes... Because I can't speak for everybody. Everybody has a different criteria. Everybody has a different reason not to give Jones the greatest of all time. For me, he has to take more fights without any substances in his body. And he has to do it consecutively to the point where the old stuff kind of just shows, okay, Jones is always this good, right? He just, this whole Gustafson thing, it's still hard to give him much, much progress in terms of legacy. Because he still got caught with something. And now there's questions about it. There should be no questions. That's why Cormier is one of the greatest of all time. Because there is no questions about him other than losing to Jones. But then you got questions for why Jones beat him. And to be honest, it's going to be harder because the competition he has now, I don't want to say it's lesser than when he fought guys like Shogun and Lyoto and Rampage because the game has evolved. So you can actually see his competition at light heavyweight now better than the guys before he fought Gustafson. Right, Gus and DC are higher level than everybody in this division right now. But when you compare the Shogun, Lyoto, Rampage, Rashad, I think guys like Anthony Smith, Dominic Reyes... Um, Jan Blachowicz and those other guys, I believe they're actually a higher level. So if he could beat all those guys in very convincing fashion, the way he was beating Shogun and them, 
and maybe beats DC or goes up to heavyweight and wins the belt and has nothing in his system ever in the process, picograms, pictograms, whatever it is, out of his system, then I believe he can summon himself as the greatest of all time. But GSP has set that bar really high. Who out of the three double champions in order is the best and beat the best competition? Cormier is number one. I say between Connor and Amanda's hard. If you just look at their competition to their skill set and the gender, Connor did beat Jose Aldo. No, you got to give it to Nunes. You have to give it to Nunes. I'm sorry, you have to give it to Nunes because yes, Connor did beat Jose Aldo. It was the greatest featherweight of all time, and he's one of the greatest fighters of all time. Nunes beat the greatest of all time before her, who was Chris Cyborg in a weight division above. Did Connor go up and beat Habib? No, he lost to him. I believe Habib's the greatest lightweight of all time. He lost to him badly. Nunes went up and knocked out Cyborg in 51 seconds. She knocked out one of the greatest of all time in Ronda Rousey. She beat a great fighter in Misha Tate. She beat a great fighter in Jermaine Duranemi. She beat one of the greatest of all time in Valentina Shevchenko twice. You gotta give it to Nunes. So I go Cormier, Nunes, Connor. I know people are gonna be like, yeah, but Connor's better. He's better skills and all this stuff. You gotta put it in a leveling playing field, right? Nunes is not as good as Connor in skills. And her competition isn't as good as Connor's competition in skills. So it levels itself out, right? This is why Matt Hughes is still considered one of the greatest welterweights of all time. Would he fight these welterweights today? He wouldn't even rank the top 15. But at his time, he was fighting people on a leveling playing field. And he was winning. It's like that. It's like that. So you gotta scale them, or I would say compare them, the competition to the actual fighter, rather than comparing Nunez's competition to Connor. Or Connor's competition to Nunes. You gotta compare them to that one fighter. So Nunes' competition can only be compared to Nunes in this case. And Connor's competition can only be compared to Connor in this case. And who has done more because of that? So I would say it's DC, Nunes, then Connor. It might sound like I'm hating on Connor this entire podcast, but I'm really not. But Connor really has to do more things, I think, to really show everybody why he might be one of the greatest of all time. Well, the long stance, heavy power hand, usually straight. But different angles with that one hand and everything has to revolve around setting that up. Kicks, footwork, lead hand, everything is to set up the power hand, especially for the straight. And the long stance really helps to dig in with it, to step in far for it. Usually being a southpaw fighter against an orthodox or you could be an orthodox against a southpaw. And usually have the outside slip to a return. Power hand is one of Connor's best techniques. It's a technique he uses on everybody. And relying more on timing and finding the openings on opponents in every given instance. Right? It's not like, oh, I saw you do this, so I'm going to get you next time. No, Connor's like, you throw that one time, I'm going to catch you when you throw it. I don't need to see it twice. I need to see it one time, and you're going to get caught for throwing it that one time. That's how Connor kind of works, but it also gasses out Connor because he tries to react on everything you do. So, stuff like that. The combinations are not long combinations. They're usually like two strike combinations at most. And even cutting off opponents with the round kicks, you're setting them up to stay on the center for the straight. And we'll do a couple more. Corey McMeekin. At Corey Mc, McMeekin. It's hard for me to say that. Can you compare the athleticism of top fighters in MMA compared to athleticism of other sports stars like LeBron James, etc.? Athleticism is a hard thing to quantify because there's different levels and different areas, different aspects of athleticism, right? So there's like cardio-based, explosiveness, how high you could jump, how long you could jump, how consistently can you keep jumping, how fast you can run, how long you could run, how good you could swim how your balance is for like gymnastics or ice hockey or something. So there's different levels and different areas of athleticism. People will point to LeBron James and football players, American football players, for athleticism, but they only show some cases of it. They're very explosive. But can they cover the other area of the slow twitch guys, right? 
or balance or other stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Precision, like tennis players or whatever it is. Can they do that stuff as well? I don't know. Um, so when people say that other sports athletes are more athletic than top MMA fighters, are they? How can you really prove that? What What's the test here? Is the test only going to be relied on what those American football players do or something? That only tells you they're athletic for that sport. It all really comes down to what defines athleticism. That's, that's what's something I have a hard time coming across because I see a lot of people say out there that American football players, basketball players are the most, they're the most athletic. And they say, you know, they could bench this much. They can jump this high. They could run this fast. They could run a 40 yard dash this fast. Yeah, but those are like four tests out of like hundreds you can do to prove otherwise, right? What if I go out there and say, all right, athleticism is going to train. How fast can you run a marathon? How fast can you cover a 400 meter race in swimming? Rather than how many pull downs you can do, how many pull ups can you do, right? There's different ways you can measure athleticism. Um, so I don't think there is such thing as someone who is just generally more athletic besides maybe those decathlon guys. They do everything. They do everything. They do long distance, shot put, to high jump, to long jump, to sprints, to everything pretty much. But the only thing they're not doing are stuff like precision stuff. Swimming is a different thing completely than running, right? Just because you're a good runner doesn't mean you can swim really well. So it's hard to quantify. And then there's fighters, right? Athleticism for fighting is different than athleticism for other sports. There's a whole thing with footwork involved. There's a whole thing with timing involved, how you move and all that stuff. Do you think, look at you all Romero, right? Romero looks like one of the most athletic guys you'll ever see in your life. But do you think he could probably play basketball if he just, if he picked it up right now? Probably not because it requires different kind of muscles. Abu Al-Tamash. Why is Khabib so dependent on the cage when he has never fought inside the cage before coming to the UFC? Because he's a savage, that's why. He's a wizard. Uh, I don't know. I guess he just learned it in training. Very strange, right? Similar to GSP on why he's such a good wrestler and grappler when he was a karate fighter for most of his career. You got DC who doesn't really use the cage as well as Khabib does. I don't know. It just maybe something that clicks for him that he can use his style of wrestling for because it's a lot of clinch work. It's a lot of clinging on. It's not a super explosive wrestling game. It's a very consistent, long stretched out wrestling game. And against the cage, it gives him more of a reinforcement, another arm to use. You know what I'm saying? So maybe he just picked that up. Just shows his fight IQ, most likely. So that's the end of the breakdown, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, make sure to give it a like and make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. My next video uh, might be the Nightmare Matchup. I know that Wake Up video. I'll probably try to finish that. So that might come out. But I really want to work my Nightmare Matchup video and my Prospect video. So those three videos are something to look out for this month. And we don't have fights for a while. So I have a lot of time to get more creative with different kind of videos. So be looking for all that stuff. And since 2018 ended, I really want to thank you guys for pretty much everything. The support you guys have given me, the feedback you guys give me, whether it be, whether some would think it would be negative, like criticism, or if it's just support. I thank you guys for all of it because it helps the channel grow. I've learned things from you guys as well. If you guys will learn from me, trust me, I've learned things from you guys. I don't know really what it is. I mean, I've been around the MMA community online for, for a while, pretty much. I mean, I started this YouTube channel in 2011. There's many different things you see in the MMA community, right? Some toxicity, some support, um, some people just having fun out there, whatever it is. I really want to thank you guys, especially for the positivity you guys show, as well as showing your passion for the sport and all that sort of stuff. When I started this channel, I didn't know where, I had no real direction on it, right? I put a video out there and you can even see, it took me like a month later to put out my second video because my original plan, which is putting out the Amanda Nunes versus Ronda Rousey breakdown, and that's it, just leaving it out there. Because I just want to get my analysis on it because I was looking at all different kind of analysis of that same fight. 
and they were all saying the same things and they weren't seeing things that I was seeing. So I had to get that out there. I was getting annoyed from a lot of it. And just the feedback and support just got me to keep pumping out content, which I didn't think I was going to do. Then prediction videos came out, then podcasts came out, then all this stuff came out, all because just the feedback from you guys. And I really try to be responsive because you guys are responsive to me. So I try to be responsive to you guys. And we are nearing 100,000 subscribers, which is absolutely crazy for me because I I never thought I'd even get over 1,000, to be honest. I never even thought about the subscribers, but I never even thought 1,000 would be likely. And... I hit 10,000 very, very quickly, and now we're almost 100,000. We're, what, two years since I started the channel? So it's a bit surreal to me. It's a bit surreal, especially because of where I was coming from in the first place. And I got better quality. Thank you to my patrons. You guys are absolutely the best. Um, I'm able to get the better equipment. I got a better mic. I got two mics, actually. I'm getting cameras, all sort of stuff. I want to start getting out the... I don't know what else to call them, but the fight companion stuff or watch party, whatever you want to call it. I want to start doing that as well. And with the equipment, I will be able to get that out sooner. And there's just a bunch of things, man. There's just a bunch of ideas I have. And you guys are making it possible. And these ideas, I never would have thought about when I first started this channel. So I just, I don't know how else to say it. I don't know if I'm, it just seems like I'm rambling. I just want to thank all you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I know there might be a lot of channels that don't really respond to the, to the viewers or don't show their gratitude. And I try to show it every single time for you guys. That's the reason why I did this podcast. That's the reason why I do predictions. I don't do them really for me. Even though they're fun, because of you guys, the community actually makes it more entertaining and more positive for me to do them. But I would have never have done these. So I thank you guys so much, and I hope I'm doing a good job on my part. But yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And I'll see you guys in the next video.